In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and happy graduation weekend, such as it is. I hope you're well. I hope you're safe and healthy. I keep uh, telling myself, my personal refrain has been that every Sunday means we're one Sunday closer to being together again in person. And maybe that brings you a small measure of comfort. I, I can't wait to be together again. Uh, to live in a uh, university town on graduation weekend without any graduation happening, or at least everything having become a sort of a catch-as-catch-can impromptu affair, is a strange and uh, you know uncomfortable or awkward experience. This uh, beautiful weekend in May, which is always our, the culmination of so much hard work and bonding and what have you, um, really just lacking. And what lacks there is the closure that so many of us have enjoyed in the past. I, I feel for these seniors, whether that be high school or college or graduate school, whatever program it may be, to lack closure is a sad thing. And I think it points to something that's deeper that goes on no matter what is happening uh, globally. And that is that we all, we all suffer this kind of un, unresolved things in our lives. Uh, this past week, a new book is coming out by the writer Judith Warner, all about middle school. The title is great. It's called, And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. I guess Warner's daughter is going through it right now. And um, she talks about how one of the challenges of this period is watching not just what her daughter has to go through, but the way that middle school... Um, triggers or sort of uh, makes parents themselves relive traumatic experiences in unexpected ways. Warner describes that, quote, middle school feeling that most adults never seem to shake. It's a place in the mind, an emotion, a sense of being somehow wrong, a freak, inferior, unfinished. How many of us, she asks, are walking around with unhealed emotional wounds inflicted in junior high? Now I can raise my hand um, because I'll, I'll never forget. I seventh grade, I was cut from my school basketball team during tryouts. And I hit my growth spurt really late, and I, probably looking back, I could understand where the coach was coming from, but it hurt. I mean, it hurt so bad that, I mean, I can still remember the where the coach was standing when he read those names. I can still remember what I was wearing. And um, it kind of colored how I feel about the sport of basketball to this day, as, of course, that's all been redeemed uh, after last uh, season before last here in Charlottesville. Um, but maybe you've got something, and you hear from people that those years, those adolescent, early adolescent years, they... Um, we, we carry them with us, and sometimes you can rewind to that, that feeling uh, in an instant. But there's so much else. There's so many other unresolved or lingering hurts or um, infractions that I think follow us wherever we go. Uh, one of the uh, common uh, things I've heard from couples in quarantine is that they, they continue to argue, shall we say, about the, the same old arguments, just a little more often because you're around each other more often. How often, I mean, that um, characterizes so many relationships that that one source of friction just keeps coming back and we replay it over and over in different forms. 
And we wonder, you know, will we ever make progress on this particular issue? We suffer from a lack of closure, but think about it on a sort of, uh, you know, external scale. Maybe, maybe you've been involved in a lawsuit that just never ends, and you wish there was some sort of definitive ending and no more appeals. I don't know what it is, but, you know, more seriously, uh, what about grief? I mean, perhaps you've lost someone and that um, well of sorrow just is bottomless. And every time you think maybe you've made progress, you, you hear a song or you smell something um, or even a turn of phrase and it comes crashing back in. Uh, this is, um, I, I like to think of the, the accumulation of these sort of scars and the ones we inflict on other people, of course, uh, acting almost as like a quicksand through which we walk. It's baggage that we carry with us. Uh, there's an amazing scene in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens when Scrooge, the miser, um, is confronted by his dead, the ghost of his dead uh, partner, Jacob Marley. Maybe you remember it. Marley is um, in chains. And uh, he appears to Scrooge, and Scrooge asks him, what, what, why are you wearing chains? And he says, well, I wear the chain I forged in life. That somehow the uh, accumulation of, uh, the, the, and the lack of closure that through which we you know, just accumulate by nature of being alive and by being limited, finite, sinful human beings, we, it, it's like a chain of what I would call unrighteousness that we carry around. And it can get very heavy sometimes. Um, and, you know, this, this lack of closure, though, I mean, it's, it's particularly acute in this particular season of corona. Of what, what are we hearing about? You know, we think we're almost out of the woods, but then watch out for that second wave. We, we don't know uh, when this will end, if that's even possible that it will end. And you hear things about a, you know, a boomeranging back in the fall, and that's scary. And that is definitely uh, part of the torment of this season, even as the weather gets so beautiful. You see, human problems, human life, I don't, they don't really ever come to closure. And even the solutions that we bring to the table or are able to, by even the grace of God, to um, instantiate in our lives, they're always partial. Our solutions are always partial. Well, this morning, we have a, a, a word about closure. We do get some actual, genuine, bona fide closure. And it comes in First Peter. And it's addressed specifically to those who are carrying chains of unrighteousness. This is the phrase. This is the sentence, the, the key sentence. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Now, that's a conclusive statement, and it's almost uh, jarringly conclusive. Fleming Rutledge, in her wonderful book, The Crucifixion, says that the love of God is not just any love. It is love made manifest in self-sacrifice and willful substitution, one for all and once for all time. Once for all. Uh, this definitive, uh, there, there's no PS here. Something was done uh, on that cross that cannot be improved upon, and it relates to you and I even today. 
This is the mechanism of closure that Christians hang their hat on in the midst of a life that is so devoid of it. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, in writing our prayer book, put it this way. He called it a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Um, now, I'm struck by this word righteousness in the midst of a, of a time of corona. Uh, if, if you're a person who likes to be, as some have noted that if you're a person that likes to be a scolder, if you if you're a, uh, that likes to wag your finger at other people, this has been a holiday for you. It's a time where there's no lack of opportunity to scold other people. The, the internet has even come up with a, a name for such sort of rule enforcers, and it's the name is Karen. So maybe you know a Karen who seems to get pleasure out of um, shaming or scolding other people. But you can also just go into your own house and no matter what, you don't need to be reminded by someone else outside, out there that you're doing it wrong. Every family I've talked to, there seems to be uh, a divergence of how people are dealing with this time. And maybe one person is the worrier and one person is the rock or one person is the catastrophizer and one person has their head in the sand. But there's always this sense of, uh, you can do this right. And the truth is that everyone, there is no right way to go about uh, dealing with a global pandemic. That all of us, even when it comes to our current circumstances, are carrying chains of unrighteousness. Whether a Karen is there to remind us of it or not, um, this is what we're doing. Now, one way we've been coping in my house with the uh, lack of closure and the sort of quarantine uh, craziness is to watch period pieces. Uh, we went through went through a bunch of Jane Austen with our kids, of course, the BBC um, versions. And now we've moved on to Dickens. And uh, Charles Dickens uh, is in mind because A Tale of Two Cities is perhaps the most beautiful and powerful illustration of First Peter in all of world literature, or it's one of the one of the great ones. Uh, it used to be a book that everyone read. I'm not sure that's entirely true now, but um, it's it's worth a crash course in regardless because it it speaks to us uh, down through the ages. Um, the two cities in question in Tale of Two Cities are London and Paris, and this is happening at the time of the French Revolution. It's a very labyrinthine plot uh, about uh, people falling in love and revolutionaries and class warfare and uh, lots of, um, you know, even international intrigue. But it really concerns uh, three people, and it's two men and a woman. It's a, basically a love triangle. The, there are two men that really closely resemble one another. They look like each other. It's Charles Darnay and Sidney Cartone. Um, and they both fall in love with the same woman, Lucy Manette. Now, Lucy, uh, beautiful golden-haired Lucy, she chooses Charles, and they get married. And um, what happens is uh, Sidney continues to, I guess, hold a candle for Lucy, very much so. And he's a very noble fellow. And Charles appears to be one, but then it comes out um, that he is, in fact, a, a French aristocrat. He is the heir to a very tyrannical marquis uh, who has been, um, the revolutionary hordes are after 
to execute, as they were all uh, aristocrats during this time. And so it it comes out that Charles has been hiding his identity, and they they the hordes finally get him and they're able to arrest him and they put him in jail and they put him in trial and he almost gets free and then he gets put back in back in chains and he's in jail and Sidney Carton sort of out of the clear blue sky is able to contrive a reason to visit Charles in jail they were acquaintances and um, he then drugs him and takes his place now, you, perhaps you know what happens. This is this the great, one of the great beautiful pictures of substitution, of the righteous for the unrighteous, that is, a, in, again, uh, in it, it br brings a tear to the eye. But for our purposes this morning, I thought I'd read as he is going to the guillotine, as uh, Sidney is being taken there, he has a vision of the future. <clears throat> and what it is, is it's a vision of closure. And it is absolutely beautiful because it's the kind of closure that is linked to this act of substitution that is almost uh, ineffably powerful in a way that cannot really be truly described. Well, let me read it to you. This is what he sees. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy in that England which I shall see no more. I see her, Lucy, with a child upon her bosom who bears my name. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants, generations hence. I see her, <clears throat> I see her, Lucy, an old woman, weeping for me on the anniversary of this day. I see her and Charles, her husband, their course done, lying side by side in their last earthly bed. And I know that each was not more honored and held sacred in the other's soul than I was in the souls of both. I see that child who lay upon her bosom and who bore my name, now a man, winning his way up in the path of life which was once mine. He was a barrister, a lawyer. I see him winning it so well that my name is made illustrious there by the light of his. I see the blots I threw upon it faded away. I see him, foremost of just judges and honored men, bringing a boy of my name with a forehead that I know and golden hair to this place, the place where he was executed, then fair to look upon with not a trace of this day's disfigurement. And I hear him tell the child my story with a tender and faltering voice. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. The vision that Sidney is given is a vision of completion. And it's a vision of sort of multiplication almost, of fullness, of closure. Uh, this, this act, this single act, which is to bear fruit uh, throughout uh, the generations. Now this is an act uh, that is just a pale echo of what we read about in 1 Peter. Uh, and that act of willful substitution of the righteous for the unrighteous, of Christ suffering the sins of the world once for all, is bearing fruit still. It's bearing fruit today. The chains that you carry, the chains of guilt, and especially the chains of fear, the chains that you forge and have been forged for you, the unrighteousness with which you are weighed down and which alienate you from other people and, of course, from God. 
Today we hear that they have been taken on by another, definitively, conclusively, for all time. Closure has been achieved, even for you. Happy graduation. Amen.